At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Do you want to be the top rated business in your area? Use NiceJob to gather two to three times more reviews and outshine your competitors. NiceJob's simple automated tools will save you time and money while getting you social proof to grow your business. New signups can get $50 off when they mention the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. If you're looking to grow your small business, visit NiceJob at NiceJob.com. All right, so on the last podcast, I did mention I was going to get that TI-250 from Doug Hines at the Burlington Master Group. Now, I got it, and I'm very impressed with how small and rugged it is, and and the quality of the imaging that comes through. It's like 10,000 pixels or 10,000 plus pixels, and it's got an emissivity from 0.001 to 0.99, I believe. I'll have to fact check that, but I believe that's exactly the statement that's in the manual. So... Thank you to the Master Group once again. Check out master.ca and check out that TI-250 if you're in the market for a small, compact, affordable thermal imager. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. One thing I have to mention is that I had a Facebook group called the HVAC Know It All Podcast. I got rid of it because I didn't really use it and I didn't really post much there. I thought that I would start it just to have a group for the podcast but it's just another group another set of posts another set of comments another set of um, responding that I just didn't have time for and I found that out after I I started it so it's deleted just in case you guys are wondering where it went Uh, so on this podcast guys we have another great conversation and it's a bit of a round table or a triangle table because there's three of us Uh, Tony first and Peter Wolf from Armstrong are, are back on the podcast with us together And we're going to talk about maintenance of a hydronic system, starting with what's in the piping, water, glycol, whatever, and how to, and how to maintain that through chemical treatment, through filtering. And then the conversation is going to evolve into boilers. It's going to evolve into chillers and cooling towers as well. So we're going to wrap that all into one conversation and the three of us go go back and forth, side to side, whichever way you, you want to ping it in the triangle, talking about this from a technical standpoint, from a, a storytelling standpoint and whatnot. So it's a good one, guys. As usual, Tony and Peter from Armstrong are coming up right now on the HVAC Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. Welcome to the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast, recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC, from storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. Tony, Peter, how are you guys tonight? Gary, I'm doing wonderful. And I'm doing just as good as Tony for once. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we finally made it here after 
getting around technology again. So what I would like to talk about with you guys, because you guys have been in this industry for, for some time and have experience built up. And I, I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying you have experience. Right? <laughs> you're very kind. Um, yeah, you're very I'm, kind. I'm just saying you have experience. So what I'd like to talk about is hydronic maintenance as it pertains to, in general, just hydronics, like piping mm -hmm. and pumps and all that, and uh, lead that into, into boiler uh, maintenance when it, when it comes to the hydronic side, perhaps, and then chillers and cooling towers as well, because we all that they all have flow through them uh, of some kind. So I think it's an important thing to talk about because I know a lot of it gets neglected and there's even fan coils in there and um, stuff like that, right? Or, or water-cooled systems. So Tony, your name is at the top of the, the, the list here or, or, or my screen. So I'll start with you. As far as hydronic maintenance, what are some of the key points we can talk about in general terms? And then we'll move on to, to boilers from there. Okay. So when we look at a hydronic system and we look at all the pieces, parts in the hydronic system, the one thing that connects them all together is pipe. But more importantly than that is what's inside the pipe. And that is some type of fluid. Now it could be water. It could be ethylene glycol. It could be propylene glycol. It could be a um, brine solution but they're all fluids. And in any fluid-based system, the first thing that is important to all of them, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's hot water system or chilled water system, or even a cooling tower, um, is you have to maintain water treatment. You know, you can't just put water in there and not add any chemical treatment to it because that water's got dissolved oxygen in it. It's got dissolved minerals. Uh, it's got other impurities in it that will do really bad things to the piping system. We also know that steel piping will rust when it's exposed to water and you'll get iron oxide in the system and the iron oxide will foul all of the tube surfaces, they'll foul the coils, it'll precipitate out, it'll drop into low points, low flow points in the system. And so above all else, you have to do water treatment. Um, so find a good water treatment guy and become best friends with him because he will be your best friend in keeping that system clean and operating correctly. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that statement. And, and I saw this really cool device sitting on uh, the, the counter at a parts house that I was at. And I said, what's that? And the guy's like, oh, I'll show you. So he, he takes this little magnet thing out and he goes, this is apparently the water in the Toronto area. I go, okay, <laughs> that looks like there, that looks really dirty. Anyway, he puts this magnet thing in and it all attracts to the magnet and <laughs> the water looks crystal clear in, in, the, in the tubing. Um, so is something like adding... Uh, magnets and stuff becoming more prevalent to water treatment? Wow. Um, Not that I know of, um, but I think what you're seeing there, Tony, is, uh, is magnetite in the water. There's magnetic particles in the water, which being uh, attracted to that magnet. So uh, the deal is, is to prevent that material, the magnetite, that, which is a form of iron oxide from uh, coming out of the steel pipe work that Tony was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Back to you, Tony. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and there are a couple people that have had some non-chemical based water treatment systems. Um, and I won't mention any particular brands, but um, they all are basically black box water treatment mm -hmm. where it's some electronic device or some magnetic device that attaches to the piping system. Now, we sell products that have magnets inside, inside air and dirt separators, inside suction guides mm -hmm. um, to scavenge metal, metal particles because we know metal particles end up in a system during the piping fabrication process. Yep. Mm -hmm. But those aren't intended to replace the water treatment system. Mm -hmm. And in my lots and lots of years in the business. Um, I have never found anything that beats good quality chemical treatment. Yeah. No, no, it makes sense. And, and most of the boilers and hydronic systems I see um, all have uh, chemical feeders for, for their systems. Is that what you're, you're kind of explaining? Yeah. Yeah. They have some type of tank. Uh, it's usually a shot feeder that is connected to the piping system and you close the valves in and out of the shot feeder, you drain it out, you open the lid, you pour the chemicals in, you, you're going to take a water sample first and figure out what you need to add. Um, most closed loop systems are a nitrate uh, based chemical treatment. Mm -hmm. um, there's some other stuff in there, but they're all nitrate based, um, which does some things. It helps coat the pipe and it helps keep the scale scaling particles from adhering to the pipe wall um, and allows things to um, stay in solution and, and stay floating in the water and not adhere to things. Um, one of the newer trends that we're seeing is shot feeders with a filter element in it. So while you're running water through that shot feeder, um, there's a bag filter in there that's filtering out some of the dirt. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those are a nice addition to systems because now, in addition to add, being able to add chemicals to it, it gives you a way to filter the water and get the microfine particles out of the water. Gotcha. Peter, well, what do you think about that? I can't really add much to Tony's thoughts. I mean, uh, I've come prepared to looking more at the specifics of the particular products, uh, the, the, the boilers, the chillers and the towers, but Tony's drawn them all together with water treatment, which, which, <laughs> runs, which runs through the maintenance, maintenance aspects of, of all of the main, main components uh, yep. in, and reduces the need for, well, reduces the amount of work that you will need to do when you come to do your regular, be it quarterly or half yearly or annual maintenance to well, all your main components, your pumps, your showers, your chillers, your boilers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Peter, I was just thinking, you know, um, and, and you and I've had some discussions about this in the past. Um, matter of fact, we just did a webinar not too long ago. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you talk about air and dirt separators and, and what a, a coalescing air and dirt separator does? Well, what it, it does act, really acts as a backup, I suppose, to the air, to the water treatment, because a lot if, if the water treatment is off, then you will get uh, gases arising from corrosion and uh, and also from um, uh, from organic organic growth. You will get solids uh, debris arising from 
metal coming off the pipework, <coughs> rust coming off the pipework, and that's where an air and dirt separator comes into its own. So it's a component that's uh, in the, installed into the pipework, and it, uh, and it has inside it, it's a big tube, as it were, hanging vertically up and down from the horizontal pipework. And what it does is that it's got a coalescence filters on the inside, very fine mesh, um, either steel or copper, stainless steel in the case of our product, which uh, causes, which uh, where the solids hit against it and then drop down into the uh, uh, quiet area at the bottom of the tube. And then uh, little micro bubbles of air, if there's any gases that are out of solution in the water, they will adhere to the to the coalescing medium and then build up in size, coalescing as it's called, until they get so big that their uh, flotation uh, buoyancy increases and they float to the top of the unit. And then they're, which the, and the, uh, from the top, they're then allowed to be uh, blown off. So an air and dirt separator does provide a, a, a great second line of defense to uh, preventing solids build up and gas build up inside your hydronic circuit if the water treatment isn't doing all the all the work that it should be doing gotcha is that, okay is that a good is that a fair summary tony you know yes sir is it, is that's it like a, excellent is it like a backup yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. So, okay. so uh, we, we got the pipes, we got the, the, the medium that's inside the pipes and we're, we're, we're protecting or, or helping mm -hmm. keeping the, the, the internals clean with chemicals mm. and, and filters and, and, and what we just talked about. So what about the, the part that's moving all this water around the pump? How do we, what should we be doing to look at maintaining that? I know, I know a pump can run for years without any problems and stuff, but what should we look at to make sure that we don't have any problems with it running? Well, as you say, as you said, uh, Gary, uh, the pumps have been around for many years. There's been a lot of development over the century and a, and a piece that centrifugal pumps have been in place, re reducing its, uh, its need for uh, regular maintenance. Um, a lot of motors are now have bearings are sealed for life, but most motors still have regreasable bearings. So you need to check that you're obeying the greasing uh, frequency that the motor manufacturer um, recommends. And so that's that's the one thing you do do, grease the bearings, but don't over grease them. Make sure that you check up exactly what the, uh, the number of hours that you're doing on the motor and what the motor manufacturer recommends for that motor in that application, be it vertical or horizontal, be it, be it uh, on a base plate with no load on it, or be it close coupled to a pump where it is carrying load. You then apply the right amount of grease. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, otherwise, um, there's not a lot else to do unless you have a, a, an old-fashioned uh, horizontal bed plate mounted pump with a flexible coupling uh, where the over time the pump and in, in its location in the pipework could be pulled around such that the motor is out of alignment with the pump uh, and then for you need to double check that the alignment is good you can tell initially just by putting your hand on it to see whether it's vib vibrating or not happily the uh, 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 the, vert the split coupled vertical inline pump that Armstrong championed and launched a half a century ago doesn't have a, a flexible coupling and has no possibility of any movement between the pump and the motor. That stays in alignment permanently throughout its life. So that, that's a job you don't need to do on splickable pumps. But as I say, the traditional base plate mounted pump does need that check. Uh, mm -hmm. It does need that check, and it would need the coupling aligning, uh, the motor aligning with the, the pump end, uh, across the coupling using a, a good, uh, preferably a laser aligner 
tool to ensure that the motor is in precise alignment. Mm -hmm. It's it's something that you associate, associate with the 19th century, but it, there's still a lot of people that still use this type of technology in, in plant rooms today. Happily, it's a, the, the number is reducing. Yeah, no, no, it, it is for sure. And, and before we move on to boilers, I was going to ask, um, and Tony, you can hit this one, like a, a smaller type pump, like an S-25 or something like that. Mm. I, if, if I'm not mistaken, it comes like a little uh, tube of lubricant that you, you squirt right into the bearing assembly, right? Yes. Um, how, well, once you squirt that, that whole uh, little tube of oil in there, is, is it required to, to can you continuously put oil in there or, to, or is it kind of good for, for a while in, in that bearing assembly? Because I've heard guys say you got to go and, and fill it up every time you go back and make sure it's filled up. But I mean, I've seen them run a very long time without applying more lubricant to it. Well, let's just get the one thing uh, clear. The S25 and, and it's and it, the S, all the S range and the H range um, have sealed for life bearings now. Uh, for, for two or three, three or four years ago, up for series one through series five pumps gotcha. are now sealed for life. So they don't need any, they're grease lubricated bearings, sealed for life. No need yep. for any maintenance, any forward. Uh, as for the S, as for the what they needed, uh, generally it was an annual check. Of, it was an annual thing you need to do. And you did need to do it every year. Whether okay. I don't believe it was ever needed to be more often than once a year. Okay. But uh, these days, but we do do retrofit uh, seal assembly, uh, sorry, uh, bearing assemblies. So people can take out the old S25 bearing assembly and put in the new seal for life. And then they don't need to worry about it ever again. Yeah, I, I like permanently sealed bearings for, for that mm. reason. So, yep. I mean, the, con the consensus is that... Um, as, as the pumps advance, there's less maintenance to be done because everything's kind of sealed up, right? Right. Okay, right. Yeah. cool. So yeah. in, in to follow on a little bit to what Peter was saying about uh, motor lubrication uh, and, and for both horizontal and vertical pumps, a um, couple things to keep in mind. Um, most of the motor manufacturers, um, a lot of them recommend Polyrex, uh, which is made by mobile. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, advocating mobile over anybody else but most of them rec recommend polyrex that's kind of the one that everybody's gone with um there are other alternatives that match that in in pressure that the grease will handle and all that um the key to greasing motors is one as peter said follow the greasing schedule the relubrication mm -hmm. schedule that the motor manufacturer defines based on the service okay um, if a motor is outside, okay, it's an outdoor rated application that is harsh service. So even, you know, if it says for normal service, relubricate every 3000 hours, it may say every 1500 hours for harsh service. So when it's outside, that's harsh service, hmm. even though the duty may not be harsh, you know, it may just be moving chilled water. But because it's outside, it's getting exposed to the sun and the rain and everything else, that bearing is going to need more care. Um, secondly, uh, don't mix greases. Yeah, use... that, was my, that was my next question. What kind of grease? <laughs> yeah, stick with whatever you use and, you know, buy a good quality grease. Don't, don't go cheap. Mm. Um, you know, don't buy it from Billy Bob's grease and hardware store. You know, buy a good quality grease, buy it from mobile or, you know, one of the, one of the quality manufacturers, um, mm -hmm. you know, Luberplate or one of those guys. Um, also on your motors, you know, you have a grease fitting on one side of the bearing and most of the motors 
have a grease plug or a relief plug on the mm. opposite side from the grease fitting. Mm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Take the grease plug out before you start pushing grease into the bearing. And what you want to do is put enough grease in to push the old grease out through the hole yep. on the opposite side. Because if you don't take that plug out and you push a bunch of grease in, it'll yep. actually blow the, the, there's a grease seal on the bearing yep. and it's just a little plastic piece that seals the, the races up to keep the dirt out of them. Yeah. It'll push that right out of the way and it'll push the grease down into the motor hmm. and all of that grease inside the motor will cause the motor to run hot and it will cause the motor to fail. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely right, Tony. Good point. I've seen it myself. Yep. Well, that yeah, that, so, that is a good that is a good point. And I was actually thinking about that when we were talking about um, greasing and and that that plug at the bottom. That that's always been that's always been something that uh, that's been drilled into. Uh, I, I would say I've seen this on social media a lot. Whenever the the uh, the greasing topic comes up there's always a few of the old school guys hey remember to take that plug out because if you don't exactly what you said tony would happen you blow the seal yep yeah and uh, mixing the wrong type of lubricants as well uh, can also be that can be catastrophic if you choose the if you get the, a mismatch of um, lubricants so let, let me uh, let, let me ask you that about the lubricants and, and mixing and matching so i'm walking by uh an air handler a couple of days ago in a mechanical room and there was bearing there was a so somebody had run copper tubing out and put the zerk fittings or the grease fittings outside mm -hmm. of the machine so you could grease it um that way i, I don't know if, if they had the plugs in them or not we don't take care of this stuff but the grease for the the motor i believe was red and the grease for the bearings was green so when i asked like what kind of grease do we use is there a specific type of grease or is it just like an all-purpose grease we're going to use on a pump? All right, quick break, guys. So I'm going to leave a link in the podcast notes. Basically what it is, the link is to a YouTube video with Jamie Kitchen and Jens Anderson from Danfoss talking superheat and subcooling. Now you heard Jamie on the podcast about a month ago talking superheat, which was a very captivating conversation. I enjoyed it and I got a lot of good feedback out of that. So if you want to see Jamie and Jens talking superheat and subcooling in the video to learn some more on top of what you learned already, check it out. It will be in the podcast summary. So Yellow Jacket, their Y-Jack series of tools, their wireless tools with the Y-Jack app. I, I have a box at home and there's some more tools to go along with that series. The one that I want to talk about right now is the pressure probe. Now, if you had the man tooth or you, you know about the man tooth, the pressure probe and the clamp got wired together. Okay. N none of that anymore. The, the pressure probe is completely wireless and it also has a T for charging, which I thought was pretty cool. So look for a demo coming out on that real soon. Refrigeration technologies. So they, they have a product that is super badass. Not all, all their products are super badass, but the, the Viper coil cleaner in the red can is a very unique product because it it just kicks the competition's butt as far as cleaning a coil. And if you've used it, you know what I mean. Like for small condensers, even in kitchens that have grease on them and stuff, it really helps to break down the grease. You basically get in there and you spray the aerosol can into the coil and it foams out. It brings all the dirt and grease with it. 
And what I like to do uh, afterwards is I like to get like a, a soft bristle brush and just clean any of that debris that it pulls out and it puts a real nice shine back on the coil too. So that's Viper Coil Cleaner in a Can by Refrigeration Technologies. The other thing, the other thing I want to talk about is the, the Trade Fox brand by Supco. So they, you guys have heard me talk about this before and there's a new tool, technician invented tool. It is called the Tugboat Compressor Tote. So basically it is, is it's like a, a device that allows you to pick a compressor up out of position and, and it's got a handle on it and it's got a long shaft and it allows you to pick it up and move it out of the position without getting down, hunkering down and grabbing it with your hands and moving it. And it looks to be a really cool device. I actually have one in a box at home that I haven't opened yet because it just arrived last week, but it is a technician invented tool. All right. In the Trade Fox series of tools. And if you do have an invention idea, a prototype, anything, right? You can reach out to them and work with them together to launch your product. You can send your email to ideas at subcotradefox.com. That's the email you send it to. And hey, maybe you'll maybe you'll become rich off your tool idea. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, guys, let's get back to Tony and Peter. So it's, there are special greases. Um, and that's where I say, look at what um, our installation manual says, okay. um, as well as the motor manufacturer's installation instructions. Mm -hmm. Now, our vertical inline pumps don't have any bearings in the pump itself. The only bearings are in the motor. Mm. So the only greasing you're going to do is for the motor itself. So there's nothing on the bear on the bearing assembly. You know, there's no bearings in the pump. Um, so we tell you to follow the motor manufacturer's instructions. Okay. Um, and I don't have it committed to memory for a uh, for an end suction pump. Peter, do you remember what it says? Because I know a lot of our bearing assemblies are sealed on those as well. Well, um, a lot of most of them are sealed. A few of the larger ones, or for high pressure applications, or where the customer requests it, will have regreasable bearings uh, as an optional, as an adder. Uh, in terms of the mixing of the greases, I'm sure I'm racking my brains as well as to remember what the two types of greases that you've got to keep apart. And maybe by um, the, before the end of this is over, I'll have remembered what it is. Well, I know there's a there's a there's a there's a water-based grease that's that's out there, and then there is um, the I know the Mobile Polyrex is mm. um, a it's a polysynthetic uh, material. It's not a petroleum-based product, mm -hmm. and that one I know they tell you don't mix anything with the Polyrex, um, mm. and the Polyrex is kind of a blue-green color, if I remember correctly. And I'm doing this from memory, Gary. So don't hold me to the mm -hmm. color. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's been a while since I've actually picked up a grease gun and actually used it to grease a bearing. All right. Well, I mean, I, I think I think we got that covered. So let's let's move on to to boilers for a little bit. Um, so as far as boiler maintenance, now, what can happen? on the hydronic side if we don't maintain a boiler or first what what should we be doing and then what can happen if we don't okay so yeah. let's let's get real simple okay let's let's move to the the fire side of the boiler yep and 
it depends entirely on um, whose burner is in it. Uh, some of the some of the newer surface combustion uh, burners um, that they they're a mesh burner where the flame actually runs on the mesh. Um, if those if the combustion air going into those boilers is dirty, there's mm -hmm. a lot of airborne dust and debris. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things way back when when I was in the Midwest, we had cottonwood trees. Yep. And cottonwood gets into the air. And if you run a boiler in the springtime and it sucks all that cottonwood into it, it will plug up that mesh screen of the burner. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you have a conventional uh, force draft power burner, um, you don't have to worry so much about the screen because the air passageways going through the, the front of the burner are much bigger. So you're not going to plug that up. However, you can get dirt and debris on the blower wheel. Um, so you want to make sure, you know, it's a, it's a forward curve fan wheel. Uh, so you want to make sure that fan wheel is clean. Um, some of the burn, some of the boiler manufacturers, um, have, uh, especially on the, the higher efficiency stuff, they have filters, you know, they just have an air filter on the air intake side to keep that dirt and debris out of there. Um, but I've seen, I've been in way too many boiler rooms where that filter is not in place. So you want to make sure that's in place. Um, and then, of course, you want to run a combustion analysis every year on the burner. Um, today's modern burners, uh, a lot of them have um, parallel positioning on them. So they run a independent air fuel mix. So the air, air intake or the air valve, uh, and it could be a VFD, it could be a, a damper, is modulating in relationship to the fuel valve okay it used to be old school burners had a linkage that connect connected the two together and it was adjusting the linkages to get the fuel air ratio correctly well now a lot of the burner manufacturers have gone to parallel positioning control and they're using stepper motors so they get really accurate control and really mm -hmm. accurate firing rates this is how they're able to do the 20 to 1 turndown on a on a boiler so you want to run the combustion analysis and check it against what it was originally. And you want to make sure that you're testing it at multiple points. So uh, the ideal way on parallel positioning is to do a 10 point combustion tack. So every 10% from zero to hundred percent. So you make sure the firing range is correct and the, the fuel air ratio is correct top to bottom. Got okay. it. Yep. So if you don't do that, what can happen is you can overfire the boiler or you can underfire the boiler. If you overfire it, you can actually do damage to the heat exchanger. You can fail the tubes. You can burn the tube, burn through the tubes. Um, if you underfire it, you're not going to get the performance out of it. So the other thing you want to look at to know whether your heat exchanger is getting fouled or getting dirty on either the fire side or the water side is if you remember, we've talked about this in the past. I think we've talked about this. I know Peter and I've talked about this on, on webinars is our sensible heat formula, which is BTUs equals 500 times GPM times Delta T. Hmm. That is the heart and soul of everything we do in the hydronics world. Okay. So if you know the output firing rate of the boiler, and you know the delta T and you know the flow rate, you can make sure everything matches. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you that then. How 
using that formula because that's a good formula if somebody wants because we use the this the the sensible and latent heat formulas and and uh, like the air conditioning side too to get the actual tonnage um the actual performance of the capacity or the capacity of the machine mm -hmm. so how do we get the flow rate um of the boiler like what what can we do to get that that information peter you want to take well, this one peter well, yeah peter, yeah sure. peter, well, jump in yeah well well Clearly, you need to measure the flow rate, and uh, the easiest way to do it these days is to look at uh, the, the 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 screen of intelligent pumps. Intelligent pumps, such as the ones that we make, are uh, measure the flow rate. So, if you want to know what the flow rate is, go to the pump, have a look at the uh, the uh, the keypad, and the keypad will tell you what the uh, what the flow rate is. Then you can then use that number in your calculation uh, to make sure that you're getting the right amount of heat output out of your boiler. Uh, very few systems have uh, boy uh, have an accurate flow meter installed. It's a very expensive device, which is only mm -hmm. used uh, quite, which is only used in in anger quite rarely. So people don't reckon that it's uh, it's worth its while. But if it's provided, as it were, for free on your intelligent pump, then that's a, a great benefit, and that allows you to then check any time what to, uh, whether the boiler is doing its job or whether the system is operating correctly as a whole. Um, so what's the so that, thank you Tony thanks for the introduction I was just uh, thinking what else can we say about measuring flow there was oh yes the only other way of measuring flow would have been to measure the pressure drop say through the boiler or across uh, your commissioning valve or your flow treks your triple duty valve that's another way of of checking the flow taking but you've got to have a nice uh, pressure uh, gauge on you uh, that is accurate and then have the chart open at the page to read to read the off the pressure to off the chart to see what the flow rate is not quite as accurate as it would be reading the gpm or as convenient as reading the gallons a minute straight off of the keypad of your pump yep no no exactly. I, I i i totally i totally get it and I, and I like where the technology is is going i mean a lot of people argue that the technology takes away from the the, the skill of the of the old school tech and, and and taking these like taking the flow of each side of the boiler and going into the charts and that a lot of people think that that um is taking skill away and, and and i guess a way it's taking a part of it away but it also makes you more efficient in your job i i think that that is the that's a strong argument that i can that i come up with each and every time there's an argument over technology taking away a piece of of the job that you used to do is i, I think well it's making if it's making you more efficient and you're not on the job as long and you can clear it up quicker and get back home i mean that mm. for me at, at my my stage of my career mm. that's that's what i like about technology oh, totally and it it would it, it it democratizes it the, the the hydronic system it takes away the black magic side of it it just makes it open and transparent easy to operate easier to operate and then as you as you just said it helps it keep the efficiency and the operation of it at top level right the way through its life, as opposed to having to get uh, Professor Brainstorm in to get all his magic and magic and uh, uh, tools out in order to tell you what's happening, mm -hmm. which then and the temptation is you don't get uh, the specialist in and the, and the system starts to deteriorate in its operation and its effectiveness and its efficiency, which mm -hmm. is not good. It is not good. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and we can move on to chillers and cooling towers in a mm. second, but I, I wanted I wanted to bring mm. this up because I think it's important, and I, I I see a lot of questions asked about. Um, so we we take anything 
um since we're going to chillers let's talk about it in in the chiller aspect so if we bring uh let's say we bring in water at a certain temperature and then we're not getting much heat rejection out of that water as we pass through the chiller um there's or not heat heat um transfer as we pass through the chiller uh, something that could be happening is we could have a, a scaling in the piping or in the heat exchanger, not allowing that to happen. A lot of people get confused between that and a blockage um, because the, the numbers are different. Like that, the, I, I guess what you read and what you see are different outcomes and people get confused on those. Do you, do one of you guys want to tackle that quickly? I guess it's going to be Tony here. I've, I've, I didn't, I didn't know there was a, I'd be interested to hear about this confusion between scaling and blockage. Over to you, Tony. Okay, so a couple <laughs> different things. Um, when when you have scaling in the tubes, mm-hmm. okay. So think about you know you've got three quarter inch or seven eighths tubes in your chiller, and you're flowing water through them, and you get a sixty fourth inch layer of scale buildup, which is really a bad scale layer. That would be, you know, that's actually quite a bit. But, you know, think of this micron thin layer of scale on the, on the surface of the tube. Well, we really didn't change the idea of the tube a whole lot. Okay. So we didn't really change the pressure drop through the mm-hmm. tubes mm-hmm. when that happens. Okay. Now, maybe if we had a really, really high end meter across the inlet and outlet of the condenser. And we were reading in thousandths of a foot pressure differential. And we knew what it was when the tubes were brand new, pristine, spotlessly clean. And we trended it every day. Yeah, might be able to see that scale build up, but chances are you're not. I mean, Gary, I don't know what you carry on your service truck to check pressure drops across a chiller barrel. But I'm guessing it's 25, 30 hour gauge. You know, you um, might have it. You might have a Dwyer differential pressure meter that's a couple hundred bucks, but you're not talking about a hundred thousand dollar piece of test equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you're not going to see that really finite change that a thin scale layer on your tube surface is going to ha- is going to affect, and that's going to affect your heat transfer. Okay. A blockage. Okay, where a tube is completely blocked. Okay, and generally, most of the chiller manufacturers tell you that you can handle about 10% of your tubes uh, before you really start to affect performance, before you start losing capacity, uh, can be blocked, i.e., or, or you could plug them, intentionally plug them if you had tube leaks. Um, and those, you know, up to 10% won't change your pressure drop appreciably. If you get a severe enough blockage where you, you really failed, really fouled up the tubes, you've got a lot of microbial growth or scaling on your tubes that it starts to look like stalactites growing inside the, the, the mm-hmm. end bell of the machine. Those will drastically increase the flow rate and you won't because you won't get water to go through the tubes. You just mm-hmm. can't push it through the tubes. Mm-hmm. The key to knowing and the easy way to really tell the difference Check your chiller approach temperature. Check your evaporator approach temperatures. Check your condenser approach temperatures. Okay. Leaving refrigerant to leaving water temperature. One degree approach temperature is pretty normal. Okay. Anything more than a degree, degree and a half, 
you got tube fouling problems. Mm -hmm. That's the key to looking at tube condition and knowing whether you've got a tube fouling problem or a tube plug plugging problem. Gotcha. Okay. I, I'm, so, I'll give you, I'll give you guys an example. And, and Peter, this is the example that, that hmm. I read, I read the other day um, on, on my app there that somebody was asking. So they, they had a water cooled air handler and the chilled water, sorry, not water cooled. It, it was a fan coil, basically that chilled water run through the fan blew over the coil to, to, to cool the space. Sure. So the, the water was entering at 48, but mm -hmm. leaving, leaving at 75. Now that that temperature difference is is huge. So in in my experience, I see that as a as a blockage um, in the piping. Now, if it was the other way around, if it entered at 48 and left at like 4950, that that tells me there's no heat transfer and there's probably some scaling going on, disallowing the heat transfer to take place. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. High delta T as opposed to low delta T. <laughs> That's yeah. uh, yeah. we we talk about low delta T a lot, but not high delta T. Clearly, yes, there's not enough water going through, and uh, and it's uh, and it's getting picking up a huge amount of heat. And I guess that even despite it's gaining what almost thirty degrees of uh, of, of temperature, I'm sure that the uh, the leaving air temperature over the coil is still way too hot. Yes, exactly. That that's that was his original call. It was no cooling, and this is mm. what he found when he got there. And mm. he he said um, he said there was a, a, a some sort of valve that modulated, I believe, and but there was a strainer as well. And and that's kind of um, what I wanted to talk about as well as with boilers and, and chillers is uh, strainers and, and how important they are to be installed and and just checked on a periodical basis. Uh, yeah, absolutely yes but let's you mentioned the valve though that can i just yep. before we go to the strainer yeah sometimes sometimes control valves can act as strainers <laughs> or, mm -hmm. uh, or even um, you know uh, pressure independent control valves um, constant flow type valves um, can get blocked up and when they get blocked up yes you, you will get you will not get the flow rate through your coil that you need to so yes, you need to keep your strainers, your proper strainers, uh, uh, under under control. They need to be blown down every so often to make sure that they're that they're uh, that they don't they don't get blocked up. Uh, but I'm intrigued by the fact that so many um, control valves do get choked up, despite the fact there are strainers in the system. I just wonder whether we're ever missing something, Tony. Uh, what do you well, think, or Gary? Peter, I think one of the things that happens. Um, in the design community mm -hmm. is that there's an awful lot of designers that don't put strainers ahead of coils. Oh, dedicated strainers. Right. So, they'll, it, they'll put strainers at, at the pumps mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and in places like that, but they don't put them at the individual coils. Oh. And so, um, and, and what I'm seeing is, at least what I'm seeing on the design side is I'm starting to see more and more engineers putting a uh, air and dirt separator in, you know, coalescing type air and dirt separator in, in the mechanical room mm -hmm. and going, okay, I put this great coalescing air and dirt separator in, so I don't need to put strainers every place else in the building. And mm -hmm. what they're forgetting is that why, you know, why I agree that coalescing separate coalescing filter does a great job at, filtering out stuff and getting the air out of the system and, and, and getting mm -hmm. the particles out of it. The problem is 
you've got an awful lot of piping between the leaving connection to the chiller and the air handler. And there's nothing to protect that coil from all that piping. So what happens to the scale and the crud that gets knocked loose between the time it leaves the chiller and the time it gets to the air handling unit? Good question. Good point. Excellent point. You know, and we didn't really talk about this, but this goes back to initial system startup and how well the system was started up. Hmm. You know, if you, if you think about a piping system and, you know, the piping gets installed and a building may get built over six to nine months, maybe a year, depending on how big the building is, what happens to steel pipe? When it sits there, exposed, it gets rusty. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's also got mill scale in it. Yeah. It's got weld slag. Hmm. Um. You know, it, Peter, if you remember, you know, piping has a an oil film on it to protect it. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to get all that stuff out of the system. Well, if we, if we, if we look at normal design velocities, you know, we design for seven, eight feet per second, right? Yeah. Okay. Seven or eight feet per second won't scour a pipe wall. It won't clean a pipe wall. It won't get the crud off the pipe. So how effective is um, the initial system cleaning and flushing done? Because back in my home country, it was, that was always a very crucial part of the process. Um, and the only challenge for us as a pump manufacturer in the UK was that in is that whereas the initial flushing was meant to be done with off-site hired in pumps uh, people would take a shortcut and use our pumps to do it instead and we actually and with our split coupled pumps we actually didn't have a problem with it because we say use our pumps to flush the system do all the chemical treatment that you want and we'll come in and change all the seals immediately before handover so that you hand over to your customer um, at, uh, at, at uh, practical completion, completely brand sits pumps with brand new seals, and the, and everybody was happy, and it was a great solution. They could use our pumps, and then because the seals are so easy to change on split couple pumps, you don't have to strip them to pieces there on the outside of the pump. It made it a very simple job. Well, you but, know, uh, it, but in in North America is well. Sorry, I was going to say, what happens in North America is the flushing as 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 cleaning as uh, we'll say harsh. It was as thorough as it used to be done in the UK. Well, it it wasn't for a long period of time, and now um, it has kind of moved to the forefront again. Hmm. Um, and so, what I'm seeing a lot of engineers specify is they want uh, flushing velocities. Mm -hmm. up on the order of about 12 feet per second. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a significant increase in flow rate over what the design velocities were. Yeah. Um, so, and, and one thing I've noticed about our IOMs is our IOMs specifically say, we don't recommend using the brand new system pumps to flush the system. Yeah. And uh, because it is hard on the pumps. Um, Seals and, in particular, yeah. Yeah, and, and the seals in particular. And so what I'm seeing is people are going out and they're, you know, some of the mechanical contractors have pumps, but they specifically have for that purpose. And 
a multitude of sizes, you know, pumps they've taken out of buildings that are still serviceable, but they're going to use them for essentially a junk pump to flush a system. It's a flushing pump. Right. Specialist flush becomes a flushing pump per se. Right. And and they don't care if they damage it. It's, you know, it was a scrap pump to begin with. Um, so some of these guys will flush in segments, depending on how big the system is. So they'll flush a section and then they will fill it with treated water while it's going to sit as they, you know, move on down the line and move to the next section and the next section. Mm-hmm. Um, or some people will do the entire system, but they'll bypass the, the system pumps and they'll run the flow rates up to, you know, that 12 feet per second, uh, mm-hmm. mark to get all the, all the crud broke loose. Um, and as they're flushing, they're draining water off and they're filling the system back up at the same time. So they're, you know, flushing out all the old water and the debris uh, and adding new water at the same time. Um, so there's a couple of different methodologies to do that. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much the norm that I'm seeing uh, coming out of the engineering world today is they want to, you know, one and a half times design velocity. Um, hmm. That's interesting. But, but That's it, interesting. Yeah, it, it's interesting, especially Gary, because it, it, it what it does do is try and start the system off from a clean bill of health. Yeah. So you know it's pointless putting in all this new steel pipe work, which, as Tony says, is has got welding slag and all the rest of it on the inside, and then yeah. expecting your system to operate at at a hundred percent, it won't do so until it's fully and thoroughly flushed. Yeah. And that and that know. does carry risks. Um, hence, hence our what we do with uh, re- replacing the seals you know it's it's a it's a paid for project a job but it delivers it it puts the icing on the cake and delivers mm-hmm. a, a top value to the customer when you hand over yeah for sure and and i didn't realize or i i wouldn't have guessed at all that there's a different uh rate for flushing and and actually running the system that was interesting to to know mm. but you got you got to ramp that that mm. flow up to, to really flush and, and get the, the, the stuff off the inner walls of the pipe. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So, okay. g- so does that answer your original point about the 48 in 75, 75 out on your yeah. coil? Yeah. I, you know, I, I totally forgot that that's where that started <laughs> to be honest. With you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, mo- moving on to, to cooling towers now. So cooling towers start, sort of go hand in hand with um, some chiller systems. So, what do we got to look at as far in, as far as the cooling tower goes? I, I mean, obviously we have to have water treatment there and cleaning procedures and, and, and stuff like that because of uh, Legionnaire's disease and all that. So, I mean, Tony, you want to touch on that? And then we'll, then we'll go to Peter and, and get both of your thoughts to end off. End off okay. The, uh, interview. Great. So you, you mentioned the, the, the dreaded L word. Yeah. Um, that, that everybody mm. in the HVAC industry just, it makes every, it makes all of us, our skin crawl a little bit mm. dealing with, um, Legionnaire's disease because we all know how, da- how dangerous it is. Um, the, the challenge with cooling towers is, um, microbiological growth is the biggest challenge to cooling towers. Okay. Because it's this nasty, warm, wet environment and, microbial growth is, you know, it just loves that environment. Uh, you get different types of algae growing in a cooling tower. You get, um, you know, of course the, the green slimy stuff that grows everywhere. Uh, and, and those are easy. Those are typical biocides. Um, and most of the water treatment guys that I know that I've ever worked with over the years will alternate biocides on a weekly basis. 
because what I've learned from talking to my friends that are water treatment experts is they tell me that the um, biological growth actually develops an immunity, um, just like viruses and, you know, stuff that we get as humans develop immunity to antibiotics. Well, the, the, the green growing stuff in cooling towers develops immunity to the microbiome, to the biocides. So mm. they switch back and forth to mm. keep that from happening. Interesting. Um, then the other thing that you have in cooling towers, and if you've ever looked inside a cooling tower, there's, there's two types of rust that form on cooling towers. Um, there's white rust, okay, which is the white powdery stuff that you see on galvanized metal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and that's, that's actually a rust. Okay. It's actually eating away at the zinc, which is there to protect the metal. That's what the galvanizing is there yes, to do is to protect yeah. the base metal. Yep. So that's what that white rust is. Um, that's attacking the, the galvanized. Um, and that could be an airborne agent that's attacking it. It could be something in the water. Uh, it could actually be the water treatment chemicals, depending on what they're using. Um, mm. I've seen guys go up and dump gallons of bleach in the cooling tower. Bad thing to do. It's just that that's hard on the, that's hard on the galvanized surfaces. Um, the other thing that you'll see, um, if you've ever looked in the sump of a cooling tower and you see these little bubble, they're, they're, they're surface bubbles um, on the metal surface. They look like little blisters. That was the word I was looking for, blisters. And they're, Sometimes they're brown, sometimes they're red, and you'll see them on the surface of the metal down at the, underneath the water. Um, that is a um, iron oxide forming bacteria. And it's actually, it's, it's a living, breathing organism, and it forms this little rust blister. And that creates, it, the byproduct of the bacteria is iron oxide. And so it will actually eat through the metal. And so that's a, another biological, you have to use a different biological agent to get rid of that. So those are things that you need to look for when you're looking inside the sump of the cooling tower. Hmm. Um, Cause those are all things that tell your water treatment guy, whether he's doing his job or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that uh, white rust piece, I, I was researching this uh, for this presentation, for this discussion tonight. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> would you believe it? And I've actually got something out of a, uh, a maintenance manual in front of me it, it does re they do recommend that the that the when the cooling tower is put to use initially that it does go through a special water treatment um, uh, process called passivation and for at least for six to 12 weeks of operation it says up before it's actually put into load in order to protect that uh, zinc layer and the, the, the water pH should be no should be no more than seven and no more no above seven but no more than eight at all times during this preservation period. So it's uh, and that's the way to prevent this white rust occurring. Another way, of course, is don't have galvanized steel in your cooling towers. Have stainless steel, but that's another matter. Right. Well, you know, and Peter, you bring that up. Um, I did a project in the Midwest a few years ago, and uh, the water treatment company, and this was a, a massive project. Um, there's over eight miles of water piping uh, for the hydronic system on the project. So it gives you an idea how big the, the facility was. Um, the water treatment contractor 
um, actually had a, um, they had a really well-defined process for preparing the piping system from flushing mm -hmm. and cleaning. And then they had a defined passivation process mm -hmm. that once you ran all the chemical treatment through it to clean it, you flushed all that out and then you filled it with clean water and then you added their passivation chemical to it and you had to hold it at a certain pH level, certain pH, mm -hmm. as well as a, a chemical concentration. Um, so they could measure, you know, in parts per million of how much chemical was in the water and you had to run it that way for, and I don't remember what it was. Um, it's been, that's been too many projects ago, but it was, you know, it was a defined period of time. And then once you ran it for that period of time, uh, that completed the passivation process, you drained it out. Um, and in this particular case, it was filled with um, deionized water, not deionized, RO water mm -hmm. and ethylene glycol because it was going to be a glycol system okay. um, until you achieved a 35% mix rate of water and glycol. And well, the O and M instruction here says that the you know that the that the passivation process is complete when the galvanized surfaces take on a dull gray color. So there you go. That's something I didn't know. Wow, I didn't either. No, no, I I, I didn't know that. Uh, but I I know when I spoke to um, a local guy here that owns a cooling tower uh, repair and and um, restoration company. Kevin uh, Cherawadi, he was saying that uh, like the the galvanized ones he sees like last uh, like half the time as a stainless steel one, and I don't know if this 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 process was being done on on this, and and I'm pretty sure that's around what he said is about half the time. I, I might have to go back and, and fact check myself, but I remember it was a substantial number. So if you pay that little bit extra, or I don't know, it might be more than a little bit extra for the, the stainless steel one, you're going to get more longevity out of that piece of equipment. You guys agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. And definitely. I've a, I've, we've got slides on how much extra, uh, how much, what the extra is for going to 304 stainless steel for, for the bottom half of the tower to going the extra, I think it's about twenty or thirty percent for the for the pan in stainless steel, and then about fifty to sixty percent for the whole of the structure of the of the tower being in stainless steel, all the metal parts in stainless steel. Cool. All right. Yep. Well, I let, let's do this. I'll give you guys one last thought on um, hydronic maintenance as as a whole, and then then we'll head out for the night. Okay. Okay. All right. Tony, Tony. You can start the show. Start okay. the show. Um, my one one thing that I will tell people: don't go cheap. Whatever you do, whatever you think you're going to save by hiring the lowest cost water treatment contractor or the lowest cost service contractor, I absolutely guarantee you will pay for it in the long run with shorter equipment life. Spend the money, do the right thing. Your equipment will last. You will get that 30-year life expectancy out of your system. Okay. Peter? Sounds good I agree. to me. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, so I'll just talk a, a little bit about something where we, about air separation and removing air from the system. Most of the problems I've come across in systems have been due to too much air or gas in the system getting in the way of circulation and 
So my advice is to regularly check your manual air vents. Don't leave them uh, untouched, but to every so often go, if you have manual air vents, check them out and make sure that they are, that, that any gas that is, has risen to the top of your system is, al is allowed to be released. Because if you don't, then that gas will get in the way of circulation and it might cause a corrosion as well. So that's my piece. Yeah, no, no, that's that that makes sense. And we didn't touch on uh, the actual um, air portion of the hydronic system and, and ways to get rid of it and, and all that. But I mean, we, we could talk about that on a on a on another podcast because I mean, air in a system <laughs> can wreak can wreak havoc, right? Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah and and to, to tony's testament there's there's a there's always a meme and, and i've seen a bunch of them uh written differently and, and i pulled this one up as you were talking there peter but tony as you were saying that don't go cheap there's a meme it says good and cheap won't be fast fast and good won't be cheap and cheap and fast won't be good so <laughs> exactly that's great i like that exactly yeah. 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 So that's, that's, that's where we should end it off. So, I, I mean, thank you guys for your time tonight. I appreciate it. As, as always, you guys um, brought some really good information that we can all learn from. So conversations like this need to be had in order to continue the education because some shops don't provide training and, and proper education. It's just get her done. And, and, and there's a lot of webinars out there, right? And, and webinars are harder to watch because you, you can't watch a webinar and drive because there's visuals to it. And when you're working, it's hard to do that. So that's why a podcast is different because it's a, it's an audio recording. You can listen to it while you drive and you don't need to look at anything. You can pay attention to the road and it's continuing education in this trade, right? From people that have experience in this trade, not old guys, people that have experience in this trade. So Peter, Tony, thanks once again for hopping onto the podcast and having this educational conversation around hydronic systems and maintaining them, right? Anyway, guys, once again, thank you to the Master Group, but I'm out. Happy HVACing. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.